in, in a sense, I would say that's our criteria for feature development. It's not what people say, it's what people do. It's not what people ask for, it's what people are willing to pay for. It's a difficult balance because people will always ask for this and that and the other, right? And you have to instead sort of put various plates of food on the table and see which ones people actually eat. We had an initial UI that we built that we thought would be the bee's knees. And we spent a lot of time on it. And we, we didn't validate it with the market. Ended up being way overkill, confusing in certain respects, but we more or less had to start over. I'm Daniel H. Glancy, and I'm the CEO and co-founder of Atacama. This is Code Story, the podcast bringing you interviews with tech visionaries who share in the critical moments of what it takes to change an industry and build and lead a team that has your back. I'm your host, Noah Labhart, and today how Daniel Glancy took solid concepts from the blockchain and enhanced InfoSec through multi-factor encryption. All this and more on Code Story. Daniel H. Glancy is a husband and father to an 18-month-old son. He studied electrical engineering and physics in school, but ended up working in finance, doing diligence on tech companies for an investment fund. In 2011, he discovered Bitcoin and became enamored with the concept. At that time, he bought one whole Bitcoin for $4. Looking back, he obviously wishes he would have bought more. We got into an interesting conversation about ICOs and tokens in general, and around how companies drive up the value of said tokens through usage rather than business profit. In his words, he saw the ICO world as a regulatory arbitrage, which didn't make for a good investment, but did make an interesting story. In 2013, he decided to leave the hedge fund world and pursue something in the crypto world. Ultimately, he realized that some of the more interesting concepts being used in crypto, specifically distributed key management, could be used in solutions outside of the blockchain. In a discussion with his co-founder, they figured out that solutions like this didn't exist, and they wondered why. This is the creation story of Atacama. The company creates a really unique form of encryption software. And what we do is enable users to encrypt their data at rest in a way that does not involve passwords, right? And in a way where you do not have centralization of the encryption keys. If you think of sort of the standard way that one would think of encrypting a file in the most basic form, one might think of encrypting it with a password, right? Now, hopefully you don't forget the password. Because if you do, it's not like having a password for a website where you can reset it. You cannot reset it, right? And if you forget the password, you're toast. Yeah, that's fine if you want to encrypt a file or two files. But if you want to do that on a massive scale, you start to have problems. And the reality is that, you know, most individuals and most companies have hundreds, thousands, or even millions of files. And if you want to encrypt each one of those uniquely with its own password, Good luck remembering, you know, memorizing a million passwords. And how do you share those files? And how do you do all the stuff that we're accustomed to doing in, you know, modern society where you share data back and forth between colleagues? You can't really do it on an encrypted basis. What Atacama does is we enable you to have all that stuff, but have it encrypted and maintain the functionality that you would have as a normal user. So you take the key and you split it up into pieces. So, for example, four pieces, A, B, C, and D. 
and piece A is on your laptop, piece B is on your phone, piece C is on your tablet, piece D is on your colleague's phone, and then you need any, say, two of the four pieces to reassemble the key. So A and B, A and C, D and C, doesn't matter which, which two. And once you have those two pieces, you can reassemble the key instantaneously and then pop the file right open. So the way that feels to a user is you're at your computer, you wanna open a file, and you get a notification on your phone, you tap accept, and boom, the file pops right open because one of the pieces of the key, piece A is on your laptop and piece B is on your phone. So it feels a lot like 2FA, right? but not the clumsy kind where you have to enter a bunch of digits and you know, the, the sleep kind where you just tap, tap accept. So it's, a, it's an experience that's familiar to the user, but under the hood, it's far more technically complex because what we're doing is we're, we're taking encryption keys and we're using unique keys for each file and we're splitting them up across various different places. My co-founder and I came to the realization that, you know, one of the ways of storing keys for Bitcoin and for other crypto assets was similar in nature. It was using this thing called Shamir's secret sharing scheme. We were talking about that one day. We were talking about you know, the use of Shamir's secret sharing scheme. And we said to ourselves, wait a second, why aren't people using threshold cryptography, which is the sort of general category for Shamir's secret sharing scheme and several others. Why aren't we using threshold cryptography to split up keys? And we looked around to see if anybody else had built anything like that and nobody really had. And we wondered why. <laughs> we said to ourselves, you know what, to heck with it, let's build it. And we put together you know, a concept and a team of developers and we started building out, I guess what you'd call it, you know, an MVP. Well, I guess it was a pre-MVP. It wasn't really an MVP, but sort of a, a POC, like a proof of concept, came together fairly quickly. I think when my when my co-founder and I saw the POC working, when we said to ourselves, wow, this, this thing actually works, I think we were a little surprised. We were like, wait, this actually works. You can actually do this. And it works well, and it's smooth, and it makes sense. You know, at the time, we had a lot of work to do to, to make the UX reasonable, but the, the POC worked. At that point, we said to ourselves, you know, we've got we've got something here. So, so you got a POC made, but let's flip into then the product after that, which I guess we could call MVP. POC, MVP, interesting thin line between the two. But tell me about how long it took you to build the MVP, maybe the transition from you know proof of concept, what sort of tools you use to bring it to life. I would say the MVP took two years after the POC was created. Because the POC is a you know, proof of concept, can you make this thing work? Uh, but to make it actually smooth and reliable, you know, look, this is encryption, right? You can't lose the keys. You can't have data that could, could potentially uh, be lost or, and, and you also can't risk data being corrupted. So th there are a lot of really important factors in play here to make sure the system works well and, you know, you know works to specification. Uh, and it took a long time, you know, about, two years to get to the point where we said to ourselves, okay, we have a, we have a true MVP. Luckily for us, that was sort of like mid 2019 by that point, maybe a little earlier. And we were, we were getting ready to commercialize right before the pandemic hit. So our timing could not have been worse. 
So, you know, with any MVP, right, you have to make certain decisions and trade-offs of what features you're going to cut or how you're going to simplify or even what technical debt you're going to take on and accept. So walk me through some of those decisions and trade-offs you had to make in the early days and how you coped with them. There was a lot of experimentation. It was sort of a lot of, let's try this, let's try that, let's figure out what works and what doesn't, what creates a good user experience, what creates a crummy user experience. A lot of this has to do with user experience because there's this there's this trade-off in security between security and convenience. And the idea behind Atacama is indeed to attack this historical trade-off that, that users are forced to make between being secure and having a convenient UX. You could be incredibly secure if you password encrypt 100,000 files and memorize 100,000 passwords, but that's not realistic. That's not a realistic user experience. So, you know, how do you deal with that? Well, okay, maybe you have one password for all 100,000 files. Well, that's a lot less secure. So the idea behind Atacama was let's get rid of that trade-off. How do we attack the trade-off? How do we eliminate the trade-off? In order to figure out where we wanted to land, how much we wanted to recapture in terms of ease of user experience and how much we wanted to recapture in terms of security and how to combine those two things, that required a lot of experimentation. And that that's sort of one of the reasons why it took you know, two years to go from POC to MVP. So then after those two years, you've got you've gotten from POC to MVP, you've you know, you've got it to where you want it, essentially. How did you progress it from there? And I think what would be interesting, too, is how how you went about building your roadmap and how you decided what was the next most important thing to build. So we're, we're focused on enterprise. We are actually releasing uh, uh, fairly soon an individual user version because we've had a lot of requests for it. Ask a customer what they want. They'll tell you one thing, right? Build that thing, and they'll say, "Ah, it's not exactly what I wanted." So it creates a lot of a lot of a lot of issues in terms of determining what your roadmap is. And you you want to be as general as possible, so you can fit into as many buckets as you can, and then you can sort of narrow things down from there. So we we knew that the underlying data needed to have a lot of flexibility in terms of where it would be stored. You know, is the underlying data that is to be encrypted? Is that to be stored on a network mount? Is that to be stored in the cloud? Is that to be stored locally? So we had to we had to do a lot of things in terms of figuring out how best to address the various different needs that the market presented to us. The way we did that was by making mini MVPs, right? Sort of an MVP for a feature, right? And then we'd sort of say, does the market like this? Instead of people saying, I like something, are they willing to put their money where their mouth is? If people are willing to put the money where their mouth is, that's when you know it makes sense to build it out further. In, in a sense, I would say that, that that's our criteria for feature development. It's not what people say, it's what people do. It's not what people ask for, it's what people are willing to pay for. It's a difficult balance because people will always ask for this and that and the other, right? And you have to instead sort of put various plates of food on the table and see which ones people actually eat. We're in favor of, of doing what I would describe as small experiments, right? And in every part of the business, not just on the development front, but on the marketing front, pick every piece of the business, right? You don't know for certain what's going to succeed. You want to you want to minimize the amount of resources for any particular experiment to run the experiment and you know maximize the results. 
right? So you want to figure out what works before you really dedicate more resources and more capital to addressing that particular function. Does that make sense? Oh, yeah. You got to have have some business demand to go build something, to go create something, or to go to fix something. You're always speculating a little bit in the beginning. You always have a hypothesis. Your hypothesis is, I think that everyone who uses this product, not everyone, that a, a, a significant number of people who use this product are going to want to use it with box.com. Right? <laughs> right? Right? That's my hypothesis. Okay, let's test it. Let's build this integration. It doesn't have to be an integration that's the most full featured, right? It can be a basic integration. Oh, it's got great uptake? Great. Now we'll build the full featured version. So let's switch to team then. So how did you go about building your team? And what did you look for in those people to indicate that they were the winning horses to join you? Building a team is very, very difficult. And we've learned a lot along the way. We look for people who have very strong technical chops and are interested in what we're, you know, interested in what we're building, right? There are tons and tons of opportunities out there for for software developers. Many of them may be well-paid, but aren't particularly interesting. We have the benefit of of actually enabling our developers to engage in interesting works. That's a, a tailwind for us. A headwind is it's a very competitive marketplace. Uh, and, you know, software developers have a lot of opportunities and we want ones who have, you know, really strong technical chops. And we also want ones who, you know, are not prima donnas, uh, have a team mentality and want to help each other. Right? And all, you know, all want to work together. Back in the day when we had an office, I think we had a very good office culture. People still help each other, of course, via remote, right? You don't you don't see it live the way you would in an, in an office environment. Very tough to find. Lots and lots of interviews, lots and lots of resumes, mistakes made along the way, right? You hire people that are not necessarily a good fit. They end up leaving. That's fine. And you end up getting a better sense for who does and who doesn't fit in. And you get a little bit better at it over time. By no means would I say that we are experts. In fact, I don't think anybody's an expert. I think it's almost impossible to be an expert, but I think we've gotten better at it over time. And I think we know more and more so what to look for. So let's talk about scalability a little bit, which will be interesting. So did you build this to scale efficiently from the beginning or were you finding this as you grew? What we've built inherently scales quite nicely. So we do something that's very unusual nowadays, right? We built we build software that actually runs on your desktop or laptop. When I think about scalability and I think about it in, in, in uh, a more commonplace context, I think to myself, how many uh, how many users can you know some particular central server accommodate, right? How and, and can I grow a cluster of those servers to accommodate more and more users? We don't really face those sorts of problems because the, you know the the system is largely decentralized. So the scalability issues that I think a lot of companies face. We, I'm not saying we don't face issues. We just face a, a sort of a, a different set of issues. We don't face the traditional scalability issues that a lot of companies might face. We face our own set, our own demons. We do have, you know, there, there are relay servers, but those are fairly easy to scale. I think you could flip it on its head and say, well, you know, the decentralized nature of the software 
makes it fairly easy to roll out to you know many 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 users right but that comes with its own challenges by having something that is decentralized you create all sorts of management issues IT administrators are accustomed to having a centralized dashboard that does everything everything all the time creating that in this context for for a piece of software that's that's decentralized is a lot more challenging if you want to avoid introducing security risks the the scalability challenges had to do with the fact that we have software that is decentralized you know one piece runs on your on your laptop one piece runs on your phone one piece runs on your tech they run in all different places enabling them to communicate with each other that was a challenge but managing them in a way that enables some degree of centralized management yet does not introduce security risks that's the really challenging part it's it's something that uh, took us a while to sort of wrap our heads around and it's something that we're still working on now i think we've done a good job of it but it's something that we continue to improve upon so as you step out on the balcony and you look across all you've built with Atacama, what are you most proud of? I mean, the software is terrific, right? But my team is terrific. My team is outstanding. I think because we went through a lot of difficulty finding the right people, once we found those people, they've generally been quite enthusiastic about their participation in, in what we're doing here. And they're incredibly bright. They work incredibly well with one another. They're, they're super hardworking. They're dedicated. It's terrific. So I think number one, I think that the team is just amazing. I'm quite proud of the product as well, insofar as we do something truly unique and provides a level of security that is, you know, unparalleled, and nobody else really offers anything quite like it. Uh, and I think that that's fantastic. Those two things, in perhaps that order, I would say that overcoming the challenges of making something enterprise grade and decentralized is something that we're also quite proud of. Enterprise software just doesn't quite fit that mold usually of being both decentralized and also being enterprise grade. When I hear enterprise, and this is changing, I think, but I even go to on-prem software, on-prem data centers, massive networks and and things on-premise for enterprise. That's not, you know, it's not totally true for today. It still exists, but but I get I get your point. It's hard to achieve that. And that's that's really cool. Let's flip the script a little bit. Tell me about a mistake you made and how you and your team responded to it. I'm going to try and pick one that that minimizes uh, the level of embarrassment and maximizes the level of education or, or inf- you know, being informative. You know, I talked about running small. You know, I talked about running small experiments. I think that our mentality about the magnitude of experiments was a little bit different. We, di- we didn't run small experiments in, in the way that we should have. I think we made a lot of assumptions in the beginning about what the product should do and should look like and should feel like. And those ended up being quite costly because if you don't have feedback from the market, you don't know whether or not what you've built makes the most sense. Here's you know, a great example. We had an initial UI that we built that we thought would be the bee's knees. We thought this thing is the best thing since sliced bread. And we spent a lot of time on it and we we didn't validate it with the market. Big mistake. Ended up being way overkill, confusing in certain respects, and we more or less had to start over. Now, fortunately, what we ended up building subsequent to that was not remotely as difficult to put together. 
but we spent a lot of time and used a lot of resources doing this thing that we thought made a lot of sense, but hadn't really validated properly before pouring resources into. And I think that those sorts of mistakes are very common for startups. Uh, and it's something that I think was one of the one of the lessons that I've, I've really drilled into my own head. And I think we've drilled into our heads uh, as a team is small experiments, right? The way you end up making mistakes is by not validating beforehand. Now that makes that makes sense. And, and pairing that with small experiments really kind of drives home the point, right? Because you're balancing or you're bouncing back and forth between intuition and market feedback. And the smaller you're doing the experiment on your intuition, the more you can grow with the feedback and back and forth. So let's switch to you, Daniel. Tell me uh, who influences the way that you work, the CEO, CTO, architect, really any person. Name a person that you look up to and why. Ray Dalio, the guy who runs the uh, hedge fund called Bridgewater. He's considered a bit of a nut by many people. But the thing that I like about him is that he's incredibly open-minded and he doesn't, he's not wedded to his own viewpoints, right? So he'll, he'll have a viewpoint on something and then new data will come along and he'll say to himself, wait a second, my viewpoint on that was incorrect. Here's my new viewpoint. And he's not willing, he's not, he's not, uh, he's not afraid to be public about that. And I think we live in a world where people are in incredibly wedded to their viewpoints. They feel like if they, if they think something, they have to be right about that thing and they're not willing to backpedal. In fact, the word backpedal has a negative connotation, but should it really? And if there's new data that comes along that indicates that you should change the way you're doing something, shouldn't you look at that data and say to yourself, maybe I should reanalyze what I'm doing? So that's something that I've really tried to embrace as much as possible in my own life, uh, not just as a manager, but also as a human being. It's tough to do, but I think it's absolutely crucial. And there are other people in this world who have that sort of attitude. We live in an increasingly polarized society, and I think people tend to stick to their guns. So I think it's, it's in increasingly difficult for people to say to themselves, I might be wrong. What if I'm wrong? What am I, what am I gonna do? I'm gonna change my mind. It's very difficult for people to do that. That's a characteristic that, that I look up to in a person and something that I strive to achieve for myself. Well, we talked about you know a mistake, but a little bit different spin. If you could go back to the beginning, what would you do differently? Or where would you consider taking a different approach? It's interesting, I was having a conversation the other day about the, the meaning of the word regret. So I'm going to kind of answer your question with a tidbit from that conversation. Regret is generally a, a, a counterproductive emotion. So, so you know, what's the right way to think about regret, and where does where does regret make sense, and and, and how should we how should we frame it? The only decisions that I've made that I regret are decisions where I could have done more or should have done more to research to figure out, to validate what the, what the optimal pathway would be. And that I you know, may have failed to do that research in advance. That uh, GUI example that I, that I described before, I think that's a great example of that, right? Something where I could have done the research and the work beforehand to figure something out, didn't do it for whatever reason, and then found that the pathway that I chose was not the right pathway. Anything else, 
you know, when things, when you, you, if you make a decision with the best information that you have, and it turns out not to be in your favor, you can't blame yourself for that. That that's, you know, there's randomness in this world and you can't, there's nothing you can do. All you can do is operate with the best information that you have. And the only thing you can optimize around is getting the best information. So you're getting on a plane and you're sitting next to a young entrepreneur who's built the next big thing. They're jazzed about it. They can't wait to show it off to the world. They can't wait to show it off to you right there on the plane. What advice do you give that person having gone down this road a bit? Don't be afraid and don't get frustrated when you get kicked in the face 600 times during your journey. Because you will get kicked in the face 600 times during your journey. Always believe in yourself. There, there will be a lot of occasions where you look at what's going on and you feel incredibly frustrated. There are moments of, of feeling truly demoralized. And there are moments, of, uh, moments of, of feeling you know like you're on top of the world. And what I would say is you want to have higher lows and lower highs. If you feel like you're on top of the world, take a step back and say, this is just one step in the journey. You have not achieved the ultimate goal. There is no ultimate goal here. The ultimate goal is is the journey and you know making the journey as fulfilling as possible. When things go wrong, say to yourself, look, this particular thing went wrong. That's fine. That's going to happen. How do I fix it? How do I move forward? You are not operating in a structured environment, I would say to this young entrepreneur. You are operating in a completely unstructured environment. And in that environment, it's not clear the size of the, the maximum size of the prize, nor the, the maximum size of the punishment, right? If you work for some particular, you know, if, you, if, you, uh, if you're a cog in the wheel, you have some sense, you know, the worst thing that can happen is you get fired. The best thing that can happen is you get a raise, right? You have a sense for what the you know, best and the worst is, right? Here, you don't know. So you really need to say to yourself, Look, if something bad happens, how can I deal with it? You can't let it destroy you. You can't let it consume you. And if something great happens, there, there's no victory lap here, right? You say, great, this particular thing went well, terrific. Now we got to keep going and, and make the next thing go well. So to put it in a nutshell, if I, had to, if I had to summarize it, I'd say, be as even keeled as possible, as difficult as that may be. Well, that's great advice. I love that. Well, Daniel, thank you for being on the show today. Thank you for telling the creation story of Atacama. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. And this concludes another chapter of Code Story. Code Story is hosted and produced by Noah Laphart. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or the podcasting app of your choice. Support the show on patreon.com slash code story for just five to ten bucks a month. And when you get a chance, leave us a review. Both things help us out tremendously. And thanks again for listening. Save big money when you start your next project today at Menards. Check out our great selection of garage and utility lighting options in stock, ready to take home today. We carry everything to help you illuminate whatever project you're working on. Shop garage and utility lighting products in store at your nearest Menards. You can also view all of our entire selection of lighting options today on Menards.com. Save big money.